We humans, more than any other species, have an incredible capacity to learn. They say that we learn something new every day. And while much of our time is spent in formal learning environments, the majority of our learning doesn't come from a textbook. And resiliency is, is a learned behavior. We all have the same ability to be resilient. We learn it through our hardships and our struggles, and sometimes people like myself are forced to be resilient. So I think um, when you're forced to, you become resilient a lot quicker because there's no other choice. On some level, we have all forced learned something. Mountain Meister is the podcast that explores topics like these by finding examples of those topics in the extremes. Who are the mountain... Just kidding. (laughs) For those of you who don't know why that was funny, go back and listen to all 100 plus of our episodes on iTunes or on our website or wherever. For those of you who are Mountain Meister veterans... I'm taking out that 30-second intro to open up space for something maybe you'd rather hear. Like you can get 20% off of a tiny little medical kit that can fit into any bag that you'd like. Too often, med kits are left out of bags because they take up too much room. Not this one. Go to our website. It's under the deals section. All you have to do is type in the code MEISTER at checkout and you'll get 20% off. Thanks. Back to the show. Hello, Meister fans. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode. Today on the show, we welcome Aaron Scheides. Aaron, hi. How's it going? It's great. Life is good in the podcast world. Good morning, by the way. It is, what, 7 a.m. where you are on the West Coast? Yeah, I'm, I'm an early riser, though, so this is like... Uh... You know, I've been up for a couple hours now, so. Good, good. When you first wake up, your voice is much lower, so I can't host podcasts uh, within like three hours after I wake up. Otherwise, my voice sounds different. (laughs) I'd probably become high-pitched later in the day. (laughs) Maybe throughout the interview, your voice will get higher and higher until you sound like this. (laughs) Yeah, quite possibly. For the listeners who don't know who Aaron Scheides is, he has traveled around the globe competing in over 200 triathlons. But before all of this, at nine years of age, Aaron was having trouble seeing the chalkboard. This eventually led to him being diagnosed with a condition called Stargardt's disease, which is a common form of inherited juvenile macular degeneration. Aaron now has 10% of the vision of a fully sighted person, but that hasn't stopped him from becoming an eight-time world champ, an eight-time national champ, and a guest on the Mountain Meister podcast. Aaron Scheides, welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's go back. Let's start from the beginning when you had trouble seeing the chalkboard. That was second grade, and actually a lot of us probably had that issue when we were in second grade, but it didn't turn out to be something so severe. So what what happened that first day? When I was in second grade, uh, you know, my teachers just started noticing that I wasn't seeing uh, the chalkboard. I wasn't seeing books very clearly or had difficulty with reading books. And so they did pretty much what any teacher would do for any other student that was having uh, these troubles and told my parents and told me I should probably go to the, the, you know, the eye doctor and get checked out. And, um, and that was the right thing to do. And, 
at that time, you know, I'm so, I'm in second grade. I had no idea what was going on for the next couple of years, even with all this testing and stuff like that. It was more, it was actually more of a hard time on my parents than me because, you know, I'm just trying to live the life of a, of a kid and didn't know what was going on. So, um, my parents struggled with it. Obviously no parent wants a kid that has any sort of debilitating or so-called disability. And, uh, so, you know, they, they really mentally struggled with that and, you know, I, I just kind of lived my life when I was uh, in those second grade to fourth grade years where, for me, I mean, I didn't know. I mean, for all I know, everybody else was living in the same boat as me, even though I was going to every eye doctor in the state of Michigan. And it was kind of a struggle looking back at it. And I do kind of remember how, I mean, some would say ridiculous it was um, just because I... You know, they couldn't figure out what was going on through using glasses and all the tests that they have. So then they basically told my parents that I, they thought I was doing it for attention. And I wow. uh, had to get uh, psychological tests and uh, neurological tests and, and, and all that. And so that, that's where looking back, I kind of am like, man, so if we can't figure out something, we just assume someone's, you know, kind of making it up. Yeah. I, I, so that that's kind of where I look back and it's kind of like, man. Um, but when I was in that time period of, uh, and I'm just talking second through fourth grade, I, I was just in my own little kid world. That's a little disturbing and depressing what you said, that, you know, like jumping straight to the conclusion that since we can't figure this out, it's probably neurological. Ooh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So legal blindness is considered anything worse than 2200 while wearing corrective lenses is what I saw. You are what? Uh, my vision now, um, once you get past the uh, 2400, which is the, the, the E on the um, eye chart, mm-hmm. you pretty much, you know, then they start using other sort of things like seeing two fingers or three fingers or whatever from a certain distance and... Right now, I, I'm I can see that E the twenty four hundred acuity level on the eye chart from two feet away. Two so feet, okay. n- not not twenty feet. So if you were to equate that out into the twenty two hundred or twenty four hundred kind of uh, system, it would be something like it's like twenty eight thousand or something. Oh, so it, it's you know something astronomical. But um, so that then that's why I kind of just tell people you know I. I see blurry blobs, I see their kind of silhouettes and their, and I see movements and I can see color, but it's all it's all a blur and it's just kind of moving or stagnant blobs. Mm-hmm. Interesting that I did not know that 2400 was the E. Learned something new. So yeah. thank you for that. Um, yeah, they they have um on the eye chart on the side, they they always have the uh the acuities over on the right-hand side, the 2020 wow. and the 20 40 and, and so forth so as it gets uh, bigger and bigger letters. Ah, I never I never realized that. Maybe I just couldn't see them. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know the funny thing is is it, it was so funny because you know, I would continue going to the eye chart or the, the the eye doctor and they would continue to use the eye chart like the same eye chart. And, and so I would you know they'd say, "Well, what's the what's the letter on the on the top and what's the next letters and and I'd be thinking in my head and still to this day well, do you want me to tell you what the letter is, or do you want me to tell you if I can see the letter? 
<laughs> wow. Because I've, yeah. I've memorized the eye chart. I can tell you what the eye chart is. Right. But, you could you could probably run top to bottom on the eye chart, yeah. right? <laughs> can I see the eye chart or can I see, tell you the letters I'm seeing? <laughs> no. That's pretty funny. So second through fourth grade, you said, you know, you have this, you're just a little kid. Things probably started to get difficult at some point in time. What were the hardest times? Oh, most definitely. I mean, the, the hardest times by far were, and I, I think for any person uh, without a visual problem or anything like that at all, my my teenage years, kind of uh, sixth through ninth grade, tenth grade, um, were definitely the hardest times because um, I got diagnosed actually with my condition. I believe I was in sixth grade, um, so it, it took four years. You know, of that going around uh, eye doctors all over the Michigan and everywhere and finally getting diagnosed and so but then when you get into those teenage years everybody's trying to to seek out and find who they really are and and everyone's trying to to be normal because if you if you're not normal or the quote-unquote normal then then somebody's gonna find something to pick on you about and um so yeah I mean I really became the uh the center of uh, attention for other kids to uh pick on me and, and that kind of stuff and then started to question uh, why me and that's when I started you know really going through the grieving process of understanding what my condition is and what this will kind of entail for the future for me and um, and realizing that this is just normal for me but that was a couple three year you know struggle to come to that understanding and there's still times today that you know I'm kind of like well, if I didn't have this, I could I could do this. But um, I've definitely overcome my my vision and have I'd say bigger obstacles than my vision now to uh, to overcome. Hmm. Hearing you say this, uh, I just saw a movie the other day called The Imitation Game, and actually the Academy Awards are coming up and may in fact have already happened by the time this is released. Uh, but there's this great quote in the movie, and it kind of reminds me of what you just talked about there. It's, it goes, sometimes it is the people no one imagines anything of who do the things that no one can imagine. And just hearing you talk about your childhood and how things have played out for you since with your very successful career in triathlon, uh, maybe people weren't imagining anything of you uh, and you did something that no one can imagine. So let's get into triathlon. How did you find the sport? Um, you know what? I, I really just discovered triathlon um, as a product of really going through that grieving process of getting uh, through and accepting my vision loss because I, I was in a very, very hard time and struggled. And um, when I was in my freshman year of high school, I was kind of finally kind of diagnosed, but was going through this for the last two or so years before that, having an eating disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder and depression kind of all in one. Um, and I think it started, though the depression I think started from just the kind of fact that I had this, this vision problem, but the OCD started from checking the clock because I 
I didn't have the confidence in myself to think that I saw the clock right or saw hmm. something, you know, something else right. So I started checking things and, and looking them back and back uh, multiple, multiple times and thinking I had to do it. And it became a compulsive uh, kind of behavior. And then I started doing that and other things and along with an eating disorder. And I mean, there was definite suicidal thoughts, um, almost even plans. But going into my, I guess in my freshman year of high school, my brother asked me if I wanted to join the swim team. You know, he, know, he noticed I was struggling. And, you know, really when I, when I went out for the uh, swim team and just getting in the water, um, really kind of freed myself and gave me that relief from all the pressures of society and and an outlet and then you know i started just really loving the endurance uh endurance events endurance sports and then i started doing track and cross country the rest of the years of my high school and uh just fell in love with it and then then uh, and i explain this to people because i think a lot of people have this idea that well some people are just stronger than others or some people are just more mentally tough than others and I explained that I learned how to be resilient and resiliency is is a learned behavior we all have the same ability to be resilient it's just um we, we learn it through our hardships and our struggles and sometimes uh people like myself are are forced to be resilient so I think um when you're forced to you become resilient a lot quicker because there's no other choice so after I kind of learned how to just overcome things and learn to be resilient, then uh, I really started looking out for other challenges. And, and that's when going to my senior year of high school, I, I, I saw a little sprint triathlon. And at that time, I had way better vision than I do now, but I was probably at that 2400 visual acuity. And my parents, I told my parents I wanted to do it. And that's a good thing. My parents were never, they never sheltered me and they never... Mm-hmm. They might have been concerned and worried, but they never said, you can't do this, we're worried you're going to get hurt or whatever. And so my parents drove the bike course and the run course the night before, and I memorized it, and they told me different uh, landmarks and things, and I just kind of followed the white line on the bike and hoped that there was someone else close by me because if someone was you know, with t- within 20 yards of me at that point, I could still keep them a blob in my sight so this is uh, when you're you're on the bike by yourself right oh yeah yeah so this was when i started doing triathlons in about 2000 uh 1999 actually um i i did my first couple years of triathlon on my own um a very dangerous uh thing but that's what i've always been as a risk taker and so that's really how i got into triathlon i said you know i said i just wanted to challenge myself and do uh do something even more difficult um, than the swimming and the the running that I was doing, and and I always tell people with triathlons, it's kind of like Pringles. You once you pop, you can't stop. <laughs> so once you do one triathlon, you, you kind of just continue them, and you don't see many people doing just one triathlon in their life and not doing another one. Your your second best theory there, your first is obviously that Pringles quote, but your second best was what you said about resiliency there. That was so cool. And uh, like, again, this is why it's so important to step outside of the comfort zone for people who aren't forced outside of the comfort zone, because like you said, it's learned. It's only Mm -hmm. something that you're going to learn when you experience it. That was cool. Yeah. And those first couple of years, I I just followed splashes in the swim. I didn't know where the buoys were or anything. I could have followed splashes. And then I had memorized the bike course and all the potholes and everything. So I got myself in the position. And then I also used anybody that was right next to me or the white line to kind of stay 
stay on course and on the bike and and then also on the on the run so it was it was definitely a lot uh more dangerous uh <laughs> then um but uh it gave many stories to tell. And I'm sure. Tell us a story. Like, do you have a go-to story? Um, well, um, for example, um, I'll give you a good story that it was not in a race. Uh, okay. But um, at that time, I, I actually uh, did ride my bike on my own. Like, I was at uh, Michigan State. That's where I went to undergrad. And uh, they, they have this river path that everybody walks their bike, rides their bike to to class and in the in the winter they, they've they've warmed the path um because it, it you know to get the ice off and all that kind of stuff and for safety and um so right next to uh the path there's the river and and the ducks the ducks have now found that the path is warmed so they go and sit <laughs> on the path well i was you know just riding my bike back from uh, actually triathlon club uh practice and um you know just dodging blobs and i had every crack and crevice pretty much on that campus uh memorized and and uh like boom i hit a uh, well a speed bump or something and uh it quacked and uh and then i realized it was a duck but i'd feel so bad if it was a duck and i would have killed it so i i just was like uh and i just kept going um because now in my head i you know i'll never know if i really killed the duck the duck's still alive in my head so um that was my duck story and there's there's many other stories of me hitting like concrete pillars and uh things like that going down uh thinking that i'm just riding my bike on a, a, a straight sidewalk and then all of a sudden there's stairs and next thing you know oh i'm going down God. the stairs on my bike and um so wow. yeah there's many and then and then i hit the parked car and that one that one uh pretty much sealed the deal for, that's starting to get to I, be an expensive I probably bike should, ride, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, i probably should uh, you know not ride anymore on my own so let's go to the races now because I'm trying to figure out how you even do this. So I was doing a little bit of research. Uh, I watched a few highlight reels. We're going to try to put our listeners with you and me uh, during this race. And that's kind of the beauty of a podcast. We can take listeners from, you know, we'll take them from their commute to work and we'll put them in your shoes. So uh-huh. let's, do, let's do some swimming, biking, and running. Um, so I can't, like, I honestly can't swim in a straight line with full vision, but I'm assuming you can. So let's start with the swim. So in the swim and in all aspects of the race, I, I always, uh, try to have my guide explain the course and give me kind of a, uh, visual for my, my mind of, of the, the direction, the shape, everything kind of, of the course so that when I'm going through it and he turns, um, because my guide swims right next to me and we have a tether around our, our waist and the tether is, is pretty much solely used for proprioception for me. It's, it's used for me to, to feel where he is. Mm-hmm. And so, um, now they have rules on how long the tether can be and all that kind of stuff because they don't want the, the guide to be, uh, an advantage or pulling the, the athlete so that you have to swim side by side. And, and, and so you use the tether as a proprioceptive device. So is, um, is it possible for the tethers to get tangled? Cause swimming at the beginning of a triathlon is very crowded, right? 
Uh, it is, um, and, and it definitely has happened in the past. Now, um, with with uh, big races and things like that, and big starts, um, the tether rule too has has uh, they, they made the tethers uh, maximum length pretty short, mm-hmm. um, so it can't be too uh, too long. It can happen that uh, that you can get tangled, but but that's you know, and this is why the guide and I, I commend mm-hmm. and am so grateful for having. Uh, my guides the guide has such a difficult job of um first they have to swim the course and know the course as if they were doing it as their their own individual self um and and then they have to um always be aware of where every single other person is on the course because they have to be planning ahead that means they're going to be using a lot more energy to sight for the buoys sight for other Mm -hmm. people because they have to plan ahead and navigate not only themselves but me um through the course um, and so as they swim and I just swim right next to him and, uh, I, I do have some vision so I can kind of see his arm motion with, uh, every stroke. So, you know, that's in the swim where it's always, it's, it's really the, the tether and the proprioceptive input as long uh, or as well as the information that he's told me from beforehand. If I know there's two turns, then I know when he's all of a sudden pulling to turn, mm-hmm. then, um, that's the one turn and then the next time would be a second turn and then we don't have any more turns. Um, so I, I, yeah, I really use the, the tether as the, the input, uh, sensory input for me to know, um, which, which way to go. I like and that, the so, sensory input. Yeah. Yeah. With the, the swim, that's where you can't communicate with, uh, the guide verbally for the most part. And so you have to have some sort of method, nonverbal communication that, uh, can you guys can work together interesting interesting all right so you finish the swim now you've got to move to the bike but first you have the transition of like putting on bike shoes and such right yeah i mean the transition um i think uh, for the for for many people um blind well uh, to be honest the transition i think for many triathletes just in general with sight is is the is one of the more difficult parts but yeah the transition you know can be very difficult because if, you, if I don't, let's say, see my uh, shoes or see whatever, see a blob or whatnot, then I either am searching with my hand or yelling to my guide, and it can be a frantic kind of moment. Um, and then there's rules about the order you have to put on your helmet before you touch the bike, and me and my guide both have to do that at once. So it's, you know, mm-hmm. that's where the teamwork of, of the sport comes in. And so, um, but that's the transition, and, and then we have to run our bikes uh through transition, I hold on to the back of the seat of the bike or just touch the seat so I know where he's going um, as he leads us out of transition. And again, he has to know where to go. So again, this is where I'm talking about. The, the guide has such a job to do because they have to pre-plan everything. They have to know, uh, know everything because the last thing the guide wants to do is let down the athlete or not be uh, look like he knows what he's doing or, or whatever. So, um, And then we go on to the bike and we, we ride a tandem bike, a uh, two-person bike. There's always question. Well, the, uh, I, I, I actually get the question if I, if I ride on the front. Uh, that, um, I, that, I, was my, that was my question, I, but I looked it up, and I saw that you're I, on the back, I, right? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, for anybody that's the guide, if they, I, I don't think I could ever find a guide if they, if they had to ride on the back um, <laughs> because I don't think they would uh, trust their life in my hands of trying to stop the bike if they yell at me. Well, you so, just got to hope there aren't um, any ducks on the course. Yes, exactly. As long as there's no ducks. Um, but uh, 
so yeah, he rides on the front, and and there's always questions of of course, well, does he pedal? Does he not pedal? Um, yes, he pedals. He pedals as hard as he can, just like I do. Um, and so, um, in reality, um, in most races, we're we're just going against the the other um, blind athletes and the other people that are on tandem bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I also know from my own experience and my own training that uh, uh, it's very dependent on a tandem bike can can not necessarily be an advantage depending on the course um, and the athlete. So, um, I, you know, I have in hilly courses that your gravity works exponentially against, right, uh, right. against you um, and, and very technical turny courses. I mean, there's a reason why uh, NASCAR uh, guys don't drive buses on a NASCAR circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so they, they don't turn very well and they're not real fast. At turning, so um, so that's you know that's another thing. But long straightaways where you have a, a long uh, you know part where you're just going straight, yeah, you can definitely get going some speed. And um, but the the thing with the tandem is, if you don't ride with your your uh, guide or ride with your pilot a lot, uh, you might have different cadences and things like that, and you you might actually lose a lot of the power of maybe having two people by uh, being inefficient and. And one person is trying to pedal at, at 60 RPMs and one person is trying to pedal at 110 RPMs and, and the bike's going side to side more than it is going forward, it mm. seems, because cause you're you're trying to fight each other and all that is doing is losing power. The, the bike, even more so, um, you really have to be uh, a team and work together and communicate because then you're, you're talking about, in, in the swim, if you don't work together and you know, communicate well, you just kind of don't go over to go the wrong direction or something in the water you don't communicate on the bike and you have a crash mm-hmm. and so it can be a dangerous thing and so you have to um talk and and know what you're going to do when you're turning and coordinate leaning together into the turns and stopping have a plan of who's going to put down one foot or how you're going to start and stop and um so it's really like i said it's a, a lot of communication and a lot of uh kind of just working together and and getting a feel for for each other and things like that because if you're not working together and you're not working as a team on the tandem you're 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 not gonna kind of maximize your potential of what you you can do so yeah and if communication and efficiency seems like mm-hmm. the key yes yeah. exactly so um but yeah and, and then you know from the bike we we get off the bike and go back and do the transition again. Um, and then we get into the run and, and we use, uh, the same type of tether bungee cord tether on our, around our waist, um, on the run, uh, on the run. Um, you also have that to, he can give some verbal communication as long as he can breathe. Right. Um, and he's not breathing too hard, <laughs> but, uh, he can give some verbal communication to me, but, but again, it's, it's much of it is we've, we, uh, we've looked out and checked out the course and, and all that. And, you know, I've really learned over the years is, is that you hear at races and stuff like that. It's always the, the athlete's responsibility to know the course. And, and, you know, your first few years, you just go to races and you just kind of like expect to, you know, you got, um, volunteers that are going to give you arrows to the course and, and, and it's not going to be a problem because there's going to be other people and all that kind of stuff. But, um, what I found Man, for blind and vision impaired athletes, to, if you know the course and you're confident um, about where you're going ahead of time, and then you also have the additional kind of cues just you know from your guide to give you um, 
on, on top of kind of having an idea of where you're going, yeah. um, it can give you so much more confidence and, and just you can have such a better race and enjoy it a lot more. Very, very cool. The breathing part, it sounded like you may have had a, a problem in the past with your, your guide not being able to breathe and talk to you. <laughs> uh, well, um, I tell people I fired a lot of guides. Uh, <laughs> Too it's, slow. It's, yeah, it's, it's funny. I actually have a guide contract. Um, I, I really encourage people, and then I'll talk about this later probably, encourage people to read my blogs. I, I try to make them pretty funny, and mm-hmm. I came out with a guide contract. Um, it's actually more of a funny thing than a real, uh, a real thing, but um, it, like just things that I expect from from guides um, <laughs> that want to guide me and stuff. But uh, so it's just a, it's just you know for fun. A lot of my stuff is for fun, but a lot of it is actually uh, really um, educational as well. Yeah. Uh, but um, for yeah, I've had a lot of experiences many many times, and I've gotten myself into a lot of difficulties um, and. Uh, it, situations because um i've had guides that maybe i thought or they thought could uh could guide me but on the day of the race maybe they didn't have their best day or or whatnot and um either i had to slow down or there's been times in the heat of battle where i just decided to ask volunteers to come in uh uh, me and um that that was not probably the greatest of decisions on my part (laughs) maybe not Very cool, though, to hear about all of those different rules. And as is the case with many sports, probably all sports, there's always controversy. Uh, Related to triathlon in general, we talked to Mike Pig uh, in episode number 51, I believe it was. Uh, And then also Kate Snow, and I think that was episode number 26, about you know drafting and there are a lot of rules around that. For paratriathlon, there have been some interesting decisions made not too long ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, At one point, a rule was created which required visually impaired athletes to wear blackout glasses. So all of the athletes essentially were seeing the same thing, which is blackness. That rule was revoked. What was the thought process there? Um, Well, there's two sides of it. And you know what? over the years, I, I, I try to be as objective and non-biased as I can, um, but I'm very protective of blind vision impaired individuals and, and uh, the, the rights, the opportunities, and, and really try to be an ambassador and, uh, and a kind of a spokesperson for, for the blind vision impaired. Um, but the rule was created um, you know, to quote-unquote level the playing fields. Uh, I, I think that's the this day and age, it's kind of like the uh, the fad right now is to you know make everything in this world or in terms of athletics um, equal, where you'll never do that, but there's this idea that you can. Um, and so you know, some people that have full vision, and this this was the problem. Um, people that had full vision um, thought, well, you know, how can we make the the individuals that have some vision and the individuals that have no vision, um, so you know more equal or is there if there's differences how can we make them equal and then put them into one category as opposed to having two categories, um, and they thought this would become this would be fair and so they put blackout glasses or or make uh, the blind um, all the blind individuals wear blackout glasses or or 
a blindfold basically on, on the run portion of triathlon. They only thought it was important on the run, I, I guess. Um, so on but, that on that decision making committee, was there anybody who competed or was a visually impaired athlete? No. No. Uh, no. No blind or visually impaired individual had any input in this, other than if anybody did, maybe someone that was completely blind that would be kind of mm-hmm. assisted by by the rule or wouldn't be affected i should say um but you know and i and i can see like i said i look at it as an objective uh, point of view if you're looking at somebody outside and you're somebody that has full vision well you might think well okay these people have no vision and these people have a little vision and you know they both kind of live in this this uh world with uh, less vision so they've lived in it and so well what if we just kind of make the people that have a little vision completely blind and then that that must make it equal um you know that's a very outside viewpoint of it could be fair but when you understand everything and and somebody that goes blind doesn't just immediately become able to compensate and and function yeah Talk about diversity in the workplace. That illustrates how important it is for somebody to be on that decision-making committee who actually knows uh, what's going on or, or can empathize with the athlete situation. I mean, again, that applies across all workplaces, right? That's why diversity is so important because different mm-hmm. different people experience different things. Um, one other more recent and uh, a future decision that has been made comes from the IPC, International Paralympic Committee, mm-hmm. deciding to exclude blind triathletes from the 2016 Paralympic Games in Rio. Why did they do this? Triathlons debuting in Rio in 2016, and the Paralympics, um, you know, they included triathlon in the Paralympics, but there's five classifications uh, of disability in, in triathlon, and, and they decided to only include three out of the five Um three for males and three for females and not necessarily being the same categories for, for each. Um, and so, you know, I, I was been working with, uh, ITU and everything. And, um, and I was pretty much assured that the blind vision impaired males would be in Rio. Um, and I think, uh, you know, they, they made the, let's say the world championships this last year, they made it out to be that, uh, the PT five category, which is my category for males was the, the the headlining uh race to watch and and everything and so we have pt left. we have pt1 pt2 3 4 and 5 for listeners uh-huh. pt1 is hand cycle or wheelchair as uh-huh. spinal cord injuries pt2 3 and 4 are different levels of mobility impairments uh mainly prosthetics correct yes exactly and then and, and then there's PT5. a few there's a few in that 2 3 and 4 it is what you hit it right in the head mobility impairments there is a few like uh, CP um, athletes and things like that. It's a very difficult. Can't specifically say PT two has these athletes. Right, these right, right. These. It's it's a little variation of uh, system. And then PT five is the vision impaired um, category. Um, and so uh, on the male side, they did not include the PT five. To be honest, um, I was shocked. I had no idea that was going to happen. Um, I had made out my plans for the next two years, and I had you know, sponsorship type things lined up and my pretty much life plans have been flipped, um, around it. But my, my viewpoint, and I've made this very clear, um, with the IPC and, you know, I'll talk to anybody about this is, um, I don't think 
triathlon should be in Rio if all the categories are not included. Hmm. If you're going to include a sport in, in the Paralympics or in the Olympics, whatever it is, you know, go all in or don't go at all. You're trained in resilience, though, and there's still time, and we're all rooting for you, Aaron. Thank you. How can how can our listeners find out more about you? You have your own blog and website, right? Yeah, I mean, I have my blog. It's called Through My Eyes, um, and my website is uh, cdifferentwithaaron.com. It's the letter C, the word different, the word with Aaron.com, and uh, my blog is Through My Eyes, and so I always uh, definitely encourage people to subscribe to my blog because it's just, just a one week uh, little email that's uh, gives my latest blogs and, and they're normally pretty funny and insightful and um, it's really everything through my eyes I also talk about a lot of uh, how blind people live and and get through life and that kind of thing and of course I'm on Twitter at Aaron Shides, um and I have my own uh, kind of Facebook fan and, and um, personal page and everything so um there's there's ways to get a hold of me and contact me if you want to um and and i'd love people to um you know respond to my uh uh anything twitter blogs anything like that and really get get involved and and help my uh see different with aaron movement um kind of grow to educate society um on blind vision impaired and what they can and can't do we will have links to all of those on our website on your Meister profile page, Aaron, mtnmeister.com. To close, I read that there isn't a cure yet for your condition, Stargardt's disease, but it doesn't seem impossible for a cure to be created someday, perhaps in the near future. Is this something on your mind? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely on my mind. I think it's definitely amazing what they're doing with, with research. I um, One thing is I, I feel like I've definitely learned how to live with the condition I have. Um, and so I, I you know hope that I would never lose all of my vision. And um, so I, I don't really want to take a risk maybe on a trial that would I lose all of my vision because I'm not that desperate. I mean, I, I've, I've learned how to really succeed and become independent and you know everything on with with the condition i have but of course if i can get my eyes and my vision restored to full vision i mean i i would definitely take that um and i think they're they're on the path with the research and of stem cells and different uh gene therapy right. and things like that that they're doing that um in the next five to ten years they might have a pretty good uh um some pretty good results from some trials and things like that and you know some sort of uh, cure maybe maybe in my lifetime so you know if i get that uh, or have that opportunity i don't know but um uh, i think you know if we can impact other people's lives and and allow them to be able to see the world fully and clearly that would be amazing so they're doing some great things Aaron Scheides, wonderful having you on Mountain Meister. Thank you for sharing your journey. We look forward to watching it in the future. For the listeners, check out highlights of today's episode again on our website, mtnmeister.com, or check out everything that Aaron is doing at cdifferentwithaaron.com. Aaron, thanks. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to that episode with Aaron Scheides. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. And check in next time with us when we have Brian Warren, a mountain guide, on the show. We chat all things human behavior and how it relates to managing those humans on the mountain. 
If you ever feel like a mountain meister, let's say you summited a mountain or you learned resilience, show us. Hashtag your photos. Hashtag MTN Meister on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. If your profile is public, we'll see it. If you'd like to send me something a little bit more private, shoot me an email, ben at mtnmeister.com. And as always, enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do when you listen to this podcast. I'm your host, Ben Shank, and thank you so much for listening to Mountain Meister.